Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. From here, let's go ahead and start the show. We're about three minutes past the hour, and we have uh, several folks joining in here together with us today to learn more um, about our topic here, demystifying fintech. So we're going to dive right in. Um, I'm going to carry us through um, about five minutes, setting the stage for today's learning community. And then in short order, I'm going to hand over uh, the spotlight to today's today's keynote uh, subject matter expert um, to tell us more about uh, this um, exciting topic, exploring and demystifying fintech. Uh, so we're going to carry uh, through um, our time together. Um, here's what we're going to be doing. Uh, we're going to be talking about this community that you're joining here at Emeritus. Uh, you'll learn more about demystifying uh, fintech from today's keynote speaker. Um, and then we're going to learn more about upcoming opportunities to expand your learning. Uh, so please do stay with us on the line um, as we explore uh, additional learning opportunities. If you like what you see here today, uh, we'd like to invite you back for more. So stay tuned for more information there as well. Um, if you want a sneak peek into upcoming programs uh, being offered by Emeritus here, and here is a link on your screen as well as a QR code uh, that will give you our entire portfolio of finance and fintech courses uh, with the world's leading universities. And so as you think about your educational journey, uh, each and every one of you um, are looking to learn more, expand your knowledge. That's why you're here. Uh, so you're certainly in the right place here um, as you're looking to expand your learning um, and reach out for more um, upskilling opportunities. So we'd love to learn more about who we have with us. We want this to be a dynamic session uh, where you're participating um, in a reciprocal learning environment, contributing as well as receiving knowledge. And so as you get logged in here, uh, we invite you to say hello in the chat, introduce yourself, and um, please let us know um, where you're dialing in from. And certainly if you'd like to share, uh, what brings you here today? What are you curious about? Uh, we'd like to be able to incorporate your comments, your thoughts, your curiosities um, as we make our way through today's session agenda. So we're going to leave that chat box available for you throughout our hour together here today. Um, if you hear things that resonate, if you'd like to share uh, your thoughts or comments, please do so there in the chat. Um, you'll also notice there's a question box available um, as we make our way through the session. If, you, if any questions arise that you'd like for us to touch on, um, if you'd like for us to dive in further detail about any of the topics we cover here today, um, please let us know there in the question box as well. Uh, we're going to save time uh, towards the end to get all of your questions answered. But certainly, um, as we make our way through the session, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, so keep those comments, thoughts, and questions coming in. Uh, so uh, you've arrived at the right place here if you're looking to expand your knowledge and learn more, um, if you're looking to advance your professional education in an accessible and affordable way. That is what we do here at Emeritus. Um, so we partner with over 50 of the world's top universities uh, to deliver um, high-impact content 
Um, so that's what we're here to do today is give you a taste of what it's like to be in one of our programs, have this opportunity to learn live in a synchronous fashion uh, here together. So welcome, uh, welcome to this vibrant community of learners. Uh, you can see um, if you're interested in stats, if you're a numbers person, um, over on the right of your screen are some of our consumer sentiment report stats. Uh, so what that means is participants who have come through some of our programs here um, have reported back to us uh, what their experience was like and what the results uh, were like impacting their business and their professions. And you can see here, 94% um, of our learners believe that the program had a positive impact on their career or professional development. And that's one of my favorite stats here. So as you're thinking about reaching out, expanding your career opportunities and learning more, um, certainly a, a rich opportunity in joining this Emeritus uh, learning community. So welcome. It's very good to have you here with us today. I'm going to hand over the spotlight now uh, to our keynote subject matter expert and today's star of the show, Rudy uh, Falat. He's founder and host of Voice of FinTech podcast. Um, and he's here to talk all about FinTech here today. Um, you can see he's a digital transformation, innovation, and startup enthusiast a startup mentor, advisor, a business angel, executive education coach, founder, and host of the Voice of FinTech podcast. So certainly you are in uh, very good hands here today um, as you learn how to demystify FinTech. And so with that, I'm going to hand over the spotlight now. I'm going to stop sharing my screen and invite into uh, the spotlight here today um, our keynote speaker, uh, Rudy Falat. Thanks again for being here. And please do stay on the line for more learning opportunities after today's keynote presentation. Over to you, Rudy. Thank you so much, Marie, for a great introduction. And uh, thank you, Emeritus, for having me. I think you know this is a great, great uh, session ahead of us. Uh, I can talk fintech all day, but I will only do it for about 45 minutes. Uh, thank you for uh, sharing the slides uh, and uh, you know for the team in the background, the in the uh, Jake and Dodge, uh, thank you so much for helping us. So uh, the objective of today's session is really to level set uh, because obviously a lot of people are interested in fintech and uh, it's a growing field, but uh, you cannot probably get into this without taking some effort to educate yourself about who does what, why are they saying it to you? You know, even though there are plenty of resources out there, um, obviously uh, it's great to take some of the courses as well at Emeritus, which is what I have done because I wanted to learn about um, a FinTech, for example, from a balanced uh, perspective, right? So this is what we're trying to do here. Um, as Marie mentioned, I, you know, I, I founded the Voice of FinTech podcast more than two and a half years ago. We cover the whole world. So whether you're connecting from the US or India, uh, we've got also hosts on the ground in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And uh, we've done more than 200 episodes with 300 guests. And there I talk with my co-hosts, uh, with founders, VC investors, incubators, ecosystem hub leaders, and then thought leaders. That could be faculty, for example, from INSEAD talking about entrepreneurship and things like this. And before that, I worked in finance, in uh, in uh, banking, in uh, Credit Suisse, Deutsche, and uh, HSBC after my INSEAD MBA. Um, now, you know, as we said in the description of the, uh, the program, we said we will demystify the key terms in fintech or financial technology. Uh, explain a little bit what's uh, what's what, uh, then you will learn how to formulate and communicate key questions that uh, could be solved or problems that could be solved with fintech or financial technology. 
And then you can hear about some success stories or case studies of fintechs, unicorns, or not so well-known unicorns, not only uh, B2C, but also B2B. And then uh, we can talk about how you can discover opportunities to improve your fintech skills. Uh, realistically, also, if you're looking at the job with the fintech, how to do your diligence on that particular company. Some tips from a very well-known VC investor, Yuval Tal from Israel. Um, so I wanted to really go back to the beginnings of the fintech boom that we are we have been experiencing because a lot of the companies who today are saying fintech when they were founding founded they didn't call themselves fintech. This was not a buzzword 15 years ago or so, right? They were providing maybe technology solutions to banks, uh, financial services firms, but that was that. And then at some point, people started to talk about fintech. So why fintech has risen so much in the last 15 years? I think the origins of it has to have to do with the financial crisis. And uh, if you do remember in 2007 or 8, when the uh, economy around the world came to a standstill, it was related to subprime, uh, subprime lending crisis. It was related to over leverage of banks. And uh, it led to bailouts of banks around the world. That means the government stepped in and they saved their biggest banks, by and large, not all of them, but many of them. And uh, the public believed that uh, perhaps uh, some of the overpaid bankers, they got off quite easily from that crisis that they uh, caused by taking on too much exposure, too much risk and too much leverage. So where we got to is that people were trusting the banks a lot less than before the crisis. And they were disillusioned by using the taxpayers' money to bail out the banks. Now, ideally, in many of the countries, the, the government money was paid back, but it took a long, long time. And uh, you could argue if this was not an industry that was systemically important, whether the government would save these companies or in other industries, probably wouldn't, right? So they had good reasons, but still uh, it, it started uh, to cause some discomfort among the public. Now, at the same time, um, the banks, uh, you know, big incumbent banks who've been around for 100 years or so, they um, obviously also uh, lift from their client relationships and uh, focus on other things than the technology, frankly. But this was accelerated by the financial crisis because after the crisis, the government uh, help, government's help came with strings and the strings would be increased regulation. And uh, we can talk about it for a long, long time, but basically what it meant is increase your equity, decrease your leverage and uh, be more prudent in risk management. Um, what does that mean for banks? Well, it meant that uh, if you increase your equity and your return on equity, therefore, is under pressure, then what do you do? You start cost-cutting. So banks started to cost-cut, um, obviously, a little bit more difficult in Europe than in, in uh, the US, because in the US, in the big market, one domestic economy, there, were, there, there was a lot of consolidation among the banks, and that helped them to get through it. Now, in Europe, where the era of national champions was even more and you know emphasized after the financial crisis that didn't happen so uh, banks uh, actually started to dig into their technological debt even deeper and deeper so where we got to is the public not trusting the banks and the banks getting behind in terms of their uh, user interface in terms of their technology responsiveness at the same time 
when we've seen increase in bandwidth and uh, and people being spoiled by the likes of Netflix. So increased hyper personalization, a um, lot of the services uh, done over the internet. And then of course, uh, during the pandemic, this was even accelerated further. So we've got lack of technological innovation and we've got distrust in the financial system that was not great for the banks, but it was definitely great for fintechs. Now, what does that mean also in terms of numbers? Uh, you know, you can also look at other startups, but you could see here that the venture capital funding has increased tremendously, especially in the last year. Why did that happen? Again, I would say the roots are in the financial crisis where apart from government bailouts, what the banks did or the government countries did, their central banks started with uh, quantitative easing which led to interest rates being next to nothing or negative sometimes. Now, in that environment, the investors are still looking for yield and they're looking for yield in alternative space. And that means private equity, venture capital or hedge funds. So you could see that that led um, finally to a huge bump in 2021. But there were, there were very solid numbers also in the years before. So venture capital, private markets on the rise as they are part of alternative assets. There are also other reasons, but generally I would say it's about investors, investors uh, seeking yield. Now, when you look at fintech funding also, right, the, it doubled in last year in 2021 versus the year before. So you could see huge funding rounds, you know, high valuations, yes and uh, successful exits, which led more and more investors into this. So um, great time to be a fintech founder if you're looking for money or if you're thinking about this. But uh, obviously be careful because now we are in February and we had a very, very uh, tough beginning of the year in terms of markets. Uh, you could see that the help that was provided by the governments around the world during the pandemic is catching up to, with us in terms of inflation which could mean increased interest rates, which could mean lower equity markets um, valuations. And what does that mean for investors? Well, they start to pull off more and more from the alternatives, which are seen as more risky. So let's see how that pans out. Hopefully this is not the trend that we will see over 2022, but so far until 2021, uh, the, the things have been unbelievably great for fintechs. I wanted to also explain um, how to categorize fintech companies, right? So we talked about demystifying fintech. And what does that mean? I would say very simply, just look at the financial services value chain. So what do banks do? What do financial services like asset managers, wealth managers, insurance companies do for you as a consumer? And uh, I would then narrow it down, especially if you take the insurtech aside for a moment, we focus on classical commercial or retail banking. The banks take deposits and they give loans and they um, they um, make payments for us. You can invest with them. And of course, all of this is underpinned by certain financial services or a network or infrastructure. So you could see that there are four big buckets when you look at the fintechs. Now, um, what does that mean? Um, there are many, many financial products that the banks have. Potentially, a universal bank would have 250 products. When you look at the typical B2C uh, fintech, 
they would have maybe five products or so, right? So why is that? Because they're focusing on one part of the value chain that the, uh, they think that the banks uh, are not serving well, or there is a segment of customers that are being unserved or out of reach for banks. Sometimes it could be related to the uh, technological debt where uh, it's too costly, too expensive for banks to service and reach out to, for example, uh, small and medium enterprises or businesses. So various reasons, the fintechs pick a particular point in the uh, value chain. They also, um, it, it can also be, of course, a personal story that the founders uh, encountered and they want, wanted to work on it. But it could be related to deposits or payments or investments or infrastructure typically. And you could start with one product and then add a few more. So if you are a B2B neobank or a challenger bank, most likely you would just start with being a digital only bank. Uh, you would focus on the client onboarding that's been painful. Classical In a classical bank before the pandemic, you would have to show up at the branch and try to open a bank account there. And then uh, you would like to get the salary there and make payments for your bills, right? So basic services. Now, a lot of these neo banks or challenger banks, they do it for nearly for free or almost for free. And, um, and uh, they would like to do it uh, seamlessly and, uh, you know, delight customers. So take away the problem from their hands. Now, the goal there is to reach a critical scale as soon as possible, but then even at some point, you know, this can work out or not. Uh, I quote here a statistic that everybody should be aware of that 90% of the startups fail, no matter what you do, no matter how smart you are or how hard you work. So 90% there is 90% chance that the startup will fail. So the idea could be is that you pick a problem around payments, then you try to be um, so much better than the incumbents or the competition you do it for next to nothing for a few years, you may reach a critical scale that is uh, of interest. And then hopefully you could add either, either more products um, or not. Uh, you could try to be a marketplace, which is what a lot of the uh, neobanks trying to do. And uh, just share the your newly found clientele with them. And uh, that means that if you just do basic payments, but you don't do investments products, uh, you can partner with someone who does or somebody who does the Forex and things like this. And you can do a client referral uh, model and finally you can start making money. But uh, this is what, you know, this is what VCs, investors, VC or venture capital investors are looking for because um, they are in it to make money, right? They are um, getting the money from the investors and uh, they are in this business to make an exceptional return compared to public markets. So they're taking on big bets, they're supporting these companies, knowing that 90% of them will fail. That means that uh, every one of them, at least on paper, should make them 10 times profit so that if 90% of them don't work out, then the remainder will pay for, for, for those failures. And um, so, you know, you when you follow the media, you can hear about the uh, much more detailed, um, uh, defi detailed defined uh, fintechs. And uh, here you can see, you know, whether that's related to uh, alternative credit or risk scoring or um, asset management or accounting and finance and all these um, 
even more narrowly defined uh, fintechs. This is just to illustrate my point. You can put them into those four buckets before, but generally they are focusing on a very small part of the value chain. So all the potential services and products and financial services, they pick a few, they pick a one, and they try to grow as much as possible and then either add more products or through partnerships, get some more economics out of it. And uh, that's where you hear the buzzwords like fintech, intratech, regtech, wealthtech, etc. These are the ones that are focusing on this. Now, is that enough? Well, we'll see. I mean, in the beginning, they are supported by the venture capitalists. So they are probably loss making, but at some point they have to turn profit. And then they are either sustainable, they start, uh, they stay private longer than ever. But uh, in the end, they may go public or they can be sold to another company. You know, it, it depends. Now, I wanted to highlight also the B2B fintech, because when you uh, hear about the, uh, you know, fintech, often it's about uh, Klarna or Revolut or uh, N26, you know, in Europe, uh, Venmo in America. And uh, these are all B2C fintechs. And of course, this is of interest for, um, for um, this is for interest, this is of interest for media. But um, the truth is that out of those huge numbers that I mentioned before, last year, two thirds of the funding went to B2B fintechs. So what does that mean, B2B fintech? So these are the business to business solutions where you wouldn't know their brand names generally. These are, if they only have B2B business, if they have B2C, then maybe like PayPal. But uh, these are the companies that uh, sort out the solutions, for example, for banks. So it could be related to capital markets that they sort out an issue in settlement or in clearing or something like this, or in um, a risk allocation, all of those things. You as a consumer, or a client of a bank, you wouldn't see them, you wouldn't interact with them, you would have one bank in front of you, right? So this would be your um, your interface, but there is fintech behind it. Why? Again, uh, banks also realize that um, they need to work on that technological debt, and um, that means that uh, they need to sometimes uh, be open to what is called an open innovation. An open innovation is simply uh, a, a, you know, outsourcing your innovation to someone else. Uh, a lot of the banks, they have open innovation garages, they, they hold contests or they are partners in the um, ecosystem hubs, like in Switzerland, where I'm based uh, is F10, supported by several uh, corporate members like Six, Swiss Stock Exchange, or, you know, the insurers and other companies here. So those ones, then they try to see and help the startups on their journey and then benefit from the innovative products or solutions that they have. And if they are not um, trying to build a brand name themselves and go directly to consumers, but they work for the banks, then uh, they are called B2B fintechs. Now, what that means is that um, you, when you sell to a bank, you ideally get a con you know access to all of their clients. And uh, these banks, they may took, they may have taken a hundred years to get there. They may have a hundred thousand customers. So instead of you trying to persuade everybody else, you can do that now. Yes, in one shot, that's what you get. But uh, to get there is also not easy, and it's called enterprise sales cycle. 
uh, which can which can take you six months or more until you persuade all the decision makers in the bank that you are the right partner. So one big bank uh, could be uh, fewer members, fewer talk, uh, counterparties to talk to in terms of getting them on board, but it could be a lengthier process, right? Whereas the consumer would decide on the spot, yes or no, but you would need to do it with 100,000 of them one by one. So one other thing or buzzword or term that is, uh, that is quite exciting these days, it's called finance 2.0. What is that? Uh, you know, there are all kinds of loose definitions out there, but basically, I think all of this innovation starts with crypto or cryptocurrencies, and then you move on to smart contracts, then the D apps or development apps, or uh, and then DeFi or decentralized finance. So we're going to talk about this a little bit more. But I just wanted to start with uh, with cryptocurrencies. You know, this is a overview from Coinbase uh, from this week. You see the Bitcoin in Swiss francs is worth around forty thousand dollars. Of course, it was uh, higher uh, not so long ago. Now, what does that mean? Um, I would say first, let's let's look at the market cap of these company of these currencies, and it's uh, less than eight hundred billion for Bitcoin. That's not, nothing to sneeze at. Of course, a huge huge number. Uh, there are not so many trillion dollar companies these days out there. So compared to those companies, it is quite big. Compared to the GDP of certain countries, not so big, right? And then you have Ethereum and Ethereum 2, and then you have Tether, uh, which I will mention as well, and you know Sol Solana also. Now, um, there all of these uh, cryptocurrencies have different merits to to those, but um, let's also be a little bit realistic when it comes to original use case for Bitcoin, and that was to make payments, right? Make payments in a decentralized finance. However, the issue is the way the Bitcoin is set up is um, quite limiting in terms of speed and uh, and in scale, therefore, and also in terms of energy consumption. So if you compare the speed of transactions on Bitcoin compared to Visanet, the big incumbent, then you know it's not something that um, can be comparable at all, right? 4.6 versus 1,700 transactions per second. Um, completely uh, different ball game for both of those. Now, same thing when it comes to uh, when it comes to energy. Uh, a lot of the countries they also expel their miners uh, from China and now from the other countries as well. So let's see how that develops. But I think the I'll mention a little bit of more of comparison between Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think the point being is yes, in some countries the the retailers they accept Bitcoin. You can pay. But there is one issue with it, first and foremost for for user, and that is the um, the Bitcoin's volatility. So what you want from a currency is you want some sort of a stability so that it's a unit of measure that you can rely on also tomorrow. So that's the issue number one. Then the issue number two is, of course, the speed. If you want to send money somewhere, you may want to do it a bit quicker. And then, of course, the underlying energy consumption is now coming to prominence more and more. It's simply incredibly expensive also um, in many countries to mine which, uh, Bitcoins, which is what's needed so that Bitcoin works. Now, I don't want to uh, trash it, of course. It is um, a great, great um, 
innovation which led to other things which we can talk about but before we go there a lot of people spend time on talking about the uh, bitcoin prices and predictions etc um what i was trying to say here is there's not much of a fundamental analysis that you can do so what you can do when you look at companies and trying to figure out whether they are undervalued or not even though if you believe in efficient market theory then and if they are well followed then they are uh, worth what they are worth but uh, you could do a fundamental analysis meaning look at the trends analysis look at the competition and then figure out what you think that the share price should be you here you cannot do it with bitcoin because the use cases are scattered and it's nothing solid that you can base it on but you could maybe do a technical analysis uh if you studied finance you probably heard about it but you know i haven't used it since university but basically it's about looking at the movements and see where the change could come from or if you don't believe in any of that then you need to uh, call your oracle and see what um, what's happening there all right now i want to also finish up on a discussion of bitcoin versus ethereum so as i said i think you should see bitcoin as a digital gold though so maybe it's something that it's not convenient to pay with every day uh, because of the share price uh, sorry because of the prices going up and down and uh, to do payments with it also takes time and money but um, uh, you know you can uh, potentially see it as a commodity speculative as it is but still a commodity like digital gold now when you talk when we talk about ethereum that's quite different because based on ethereum you can build certain apps you can build smart contracts for example and other you know as i said other blockchain based apps nowadays so you don't need to start from scratch so all kind there are all kinds of apps that are based off the ethereum protocol and uh, you could see also uh, on the right side here the fees that are generated by the uh, bitcoin or ethereum this is um i think from last year where ethereum exceeds the bitcoin by far now lately in the last couple of weeks or months ethereum transpired it transpired that ethereum has been losing market share that's also related to use of ethereum for nfts which skyrocketed last year and uh, the gas fees related to it sometimes um, were too expensive you know people talk about selling digital art as an nft for 60 million dollars but that doesn't happen to many people and uh, it costs maybe 700 dollars in so-called gas fees to um my, to create an nft based of ethereum and in which case maybe if there is no demand for it that generates 700 dollars you are uh, in a loss if you created one so what are people thinking about is other protocols like solana so keep an eye on those um and uh, we'll see which cryptocurrency will be the winner but right now it's a little bit of a early uh, early to uh to early to talk about it but you could also hear about the alternatives which is um which are stable coins and that the most famous one and you've seen in the slide you know before um this was one of the top ones in terms of market cap is tether so that's meant to be a cryptocurrency backed by us dollar that's the headline but the truth is 
it's actually based by US dollar only partially. And otherwise it's used, you know, it's actually backed by commercial paper that is issued in the US. Yes, it's close to the currency, but it's not the currency, right? And then you've got loans and bonds. So it's very safe securities behind it, but it's not the US dollar. What does that mean? That the value of it will not be tracking US dollar and exchange rate of US dollar to Euro or anything else uh, as perfectly as you wish or as the idea would have been, right? So stable coin in theory should be much more stable than Bitcoin, but given the fact that it's a replicated portfolio, which is meant to be as close as money and or as close as US dollar as possible, that's true, but it's still not, the, there is a potential for divergence, right? So keep an eye out for that. Now, one more thing I wanted to mention here when we talk about crypto is the CBDCs or central bank digital currencies. So nowadays over 80 countries are exploring whether to issue CBDCs or not, including Brazil, Canada, the EU, UK, Sweden, South Korea, South Africa, Nigeria, Japan, and as I said, 80 of them, right? 80 of them. So why are they doing it? Isn't the central currency or isn't the currency already digital, right? Well, it's not. We still have cash, cash, you know, in terms of paper bills and we've got coins in our pockets. Maybe if we've been using it a lot less in the last um, two years or so. Uh, for in my, in my taste, that's great. But, um, you know, there are selfish reasons why central banks are considering this. One of them is they obviously their role is to keep the monetary control. So as the appetite of public for crypto is increasing or blockchain, then also they don't want to be left out and they don't want people to transact their economic transactions with the currency other than the one issued by the central bank. And um, of course, they do understand that the paper money roles is diminishing so they're thinking of alternatives now on the other hand if you just digitize what is out there uh, then uh, there are also some things to consider whereas um, you know would you like central bank to be the bank of all the people in the country uh, directly do you want to have banks in between or not um, you know should this bring also some other benefits on top of it that you couldn't envisage with the current setup absolutely yes and then the other thing is can this be interoperable? So in the end, we, if we have a e-franc in Switzerland and you have an e-US e dollar in the US and we'd like to exchange it, we should be able to do so, right? So there are still many, many challenges. Banks are looking into it um, or central banks that are looking into it and the countries and we'll, we'll see how it goes. But um, I think uh, most of the commentators would say that um, it's not a question of whether it will happen, but when it will happen. So watch out for CBDCs and uh, how that will change the world we live in. One more thing very quickly, I wanted to mention what's the other difference between Bitcoin and what will be the Ethereum 2 is that the Bitcoin is based on a proof of work, which uh, is, you know, mining technique in a way they call it. So miners are rewarded for providing the computing power the computers to calculate certain challenging mathematical problems that are used to verify transactions on the Bitcoin. So they're verifying, they're verifying, for example, no double uh, spend. So there is no double spend problem. So once the money leaves from my wallet to your wallet, it cannot be in my wallet anymore. 
things like this. All of these things are calculated and uh, whoever gets to that solution first gets the Bitcoins, right? Now, that means, uh, you know, you need uh, very strong computers. You need lots of electricity. A lot of people invested in the rigs to do this in many countries, but um, you pay for that electricity with fiat money. So depending on the Bitcoin price, depending on the regulations, depending on the electricity prices in your country, this may be uh, not a um, very uh, rational thing to do. So that's why you saw that uh, miners were concentrating in certain countries where um, the environment for them was better. Now, the alternative is proof of stake, which is uh, uh, sorting out these sort of issues that I mentioned before. It's lack of speed, lack of scalability, and uh, energy consumption and barriers to entry. There, I would just say very simply, you verify the transactions uh, when you are a validator, validator of the transaction by staking your own tokens or your own cryptocurrency. And in that case, you can be seen as a trusted uh, trusted validator. And in any case, you're not going to be only one of them, but there will be many, many of you and the other thing that you should maybe read upon is all of this is meant to avoid a 51% attack. So we don't want the miners to create coalitions and then um, get 51% and uh, then potentially um, verify the transactions the way they want or not verify the way they want rather than uh, you know how they objectively should have been. And one other thing is when people talk about crypto, they don't forget that the uh, the people in the industry are quite um, happy with using blockchain solutions, which are a private or um, consortium blockchains. These are the ones which are related to enterprise blockchain solution. What does that mean? It has nothing to do with the cryptocurrencies, really, but it's using a blockchain um, technology in the background or on, as a basis. And for example, the solution that you can use it for is the um, is um, is um, uh, back office or the settlement in uh, trading securities. And some of these big enterprise protocols are mentioned here. Of course, uh, you know, with Hyperledger Fabric is is very big. Then you've got Corda by R3, and you've got the Ethereum as well. You've got the multi-chain network and quorum that was developed originally by JP Morgan and then um, sold off. So decentralized finance uh, or DeFi is an ecosystem that allows users to uh, build financial services and products without relying on the traditional financial uh, institution. As I mentioned, Ethereum is the number one uh, blockchain to go to. Solana, Cardano, Cardano or Polkadot are the uh, emerging competitors to Ethereum. And what I just wanted to mention here, apart from the recent one or two months, uh, you've seen that um, this, um, this field has been booming, right? So you see total value locked in USD about $87 billion. Um, that means um, basically people using the apps for uh, smart contracts and before and so that they can use those they and they lock a certain value in those contracts and this is the measure that the um that this source is talking about DeFi pools so check it out um absolutely uh exciting and the hottest area of fintech these days 
one example here is to try to think about this in uh, also use cases that you think wouldn't be uh, necessarily easy or traditional. Try to go into the fields which are not necessarily super crowded. So here is a, a, a guest of mine on, a, on the Voice of Fintech podcast where we talked about the smart contracts in modeling world. Also, we talked about AI when it comes to looking for particular types of looks instead of going through the books you basically just use the AI to uh, to find it for you. But the smart contracts are very simple. It just works as an escrow using blockchain where you say what are the criteria when the money should be uh, wired to the one part from one party to another. In this case is to be sent by the client or photographed to a model. So instead of models chasing the agencies or the uh, clients and photographers for money, uh, once the job is done, you just get the money uh, automatically. So that's uh, one innovation in the online version of the, the modeling business. But of course, you can uh, look at it in traditional insurance. You can look at smart contracts in supply chain, in logistics. And, um, you know, in general, as some people say, what in the future will not be tokenized? You know, probably nothing. Um, one thing i wanted to mention here and i don't want to scare off people you know of course there's a huge potential and of course just like with any sort of security and encryption when something was broken then the security protocols were upgraded but still um as i said there are many other issues with blockchain with, which relate to scalability speed energy consumption but there is one other one which you can think about is that um of course, we are far away from a workable quantum computer. And uh, I wish I would have a desktop quantum computer one day, but I was told by our friends at IBM this will never be the case because quantum computers are useful only for particular types of problems. One of those could be breaking the cryptographic screen that is the uh, core of the blockchain. So we'll see how that goes. Maybe at that point, we will need to update the blockchains as well so that they are uh, quantum safe as well. There are already startups that are so far ahead or thinking far ahead in the future where we don't have the quantum computer that is workable, useful at all. And we will not have it, even the basic one, maybe for next 15 years or 20 years. Uh, but um, they are thinking about post-quantum uh, blockchain security or crypto security. So something really um, further into the future. But uh, I thought exciting uh, to think about. So I'll just I'll spend a lot of time on blockchain just because it's so much in the media. I just wanted to say, let's see you, you know where you are, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, uh, let us know in the comments. But I think on the optimistic side, there's so much potential. Maybe you will be in different field than originally thought that uh, you know it's not going to be about payments as much as it will be about decentralized finance where people will try to disintermediate banks or traditional financial services firms as much as possible. And it will be an economical and it will be functional and it will just work. And uh, what we see now in terms of adoption is something that has to, is similar to derivatives in the 80s, where some regulators in some markets back then didn't want to allow derivatives at all because they didn't have capacity to regulate it. Now, 
these days of course this is a one of the toolkits of traders right it's part of the risk management as much as speculation of course but if you want to do trading you need leverage and you need derivatives so let's see how this will be with blockchain but that's what the optimists will say this will be completely mainstream maybe in different shape or form than we think but it will be now the pessimists will say well this is just a fad like many other fads and will uh, go away so Let's see. Um, I'll, I'll pause here to see if you have any reactions. Okay, not yet. So I'll uh, I'll continue. So, you know, where can fintech add value? Um, I would say the many many trends that we've seen over the last uh, two years, especially. Um, you know, you can talk about digital payments in any country. You see, uh, pandemic accelerated the digital payments uh, you know, adoption. Some people say nowadays we pay through it because the fees are somehow passed on to us. We'll see, but I think the convenience of it, the innovation of it, is tremendous, and I think there is no way going back. You can see here that in India, the portion of digital payments. It's grown to 76% in the last 12 months. So I don't think this will drop down uh, if we uh, get rid of the pandemic uh, to pre-pandemic numbers either. We'll see. Digital-only banks. You know, in many countries, it was also hard to go to a branch. It was um, accelerated by the pandemic as well. And that this was, in theory, a good time for neobanks or challenging bank, challenger banks. And... Uh, Generally, that uh, makes sense. And some of them, this was a little bit more complicated. But in any case, the banks, uh, traditional banks also uh, uh, respond to it with their own apps, with their own approaches, uh, more increased focus on digital, on consumer uh, or, or user interface. So the other thing is the fintech as a service. I would say, um, as I said, this is related to um, to B2B. A lot of the fintech companies, they um, provide the their products as a license. They have a product and they pro provide it as a license to their clients. Uh, and this is how they go about scaling up. They have a product without too much customization and they try to sell it to a number of banks. Automate, autonomous finance, another one where you can use see AI, ML uh, helping us a lot. Financial literacy, of course. Um, we have seen a survey here that um, most of the Gen Z uh, would have been happier about their finances during the pandemic if they, uh, if they were a little bit more um, on top of the uh, financial products and services and their knowledge. Lastly, blockchain and crypto, we talked about it quite a lot. And then, of course, sustainability is cutting across all of this because sustainability and impact have become mainstream and uh, there's nothing extreme about it. Every bank, every uh, every wealth manager has some uh, sustainability products. The issue is now moving to a next level, which is the data quality and reporting and uh, you know how ambitious you want to be in terms of uh, being carbon neutral, etc., and how can finance help you there? So a lot of the uh, case studies uh, we can talk about in terms of you know you, um, success stories. I wanted to just mention a few: Revolut, Klarna, 
or N26, as I mentioned before, the dilemma is scale versus profitability. At some point, they will have to make money and uh, they will and uh, hopefully and, uh, you know, because their investors will not fund them forever. But sometimes it could be a bumpy road. But in any case, we've got so many unicorns in the world right now, over 900. And out of these are 200 of fintech. So very exciting field. And uh, for one industry or one sector to be so dominant, this is unbelievable, right? So it's also when you compare the VC funding versus uh, fintech funding, one dollar in five goes to fintech. So same thing, uh, you know, applies to unicorns. I wanted to briefly mention here a couple of unicorns that appeared on um, Voice of Fintech. I talked to blockchain.com. I talked to my uh, former internal client at Credit Suisse from Adapar. That is a solution for wealth management reporting. Uh, Sokur, a software company for fintechs, Neum, uh, payment infrastructure in India. Wala, B2C, uh, um, unbelievable neobank in Argentina. So, you know, that's one of my colleagues where I talked to. Neum, one of our co-hosts, works at anyway. So, um, many unicorns that are not in the B2C space. As I mentioned before, B2B is two-thirds of the funding. Maybe you wouldn't know from a user perspective what's behind it but it's quite exciting and that's uh, uh that's an increasing opportunity because people realize that um, building a brand it's a lot of effort and uh, success rate is success is not uh, guaranteed so they may move to uh, b2b instead also just wanted to mention here we talked to pahal patangia uh, with an, in a Meritus event last week, and I released it also as a podcast. So check it out. We talked about explainable AI in fintech, and uh, it was co-hosted by Emeritus as well. Otherwise, I talked to many people from um, the AI slash fintech world, um, like for Infosys, IBM, uh, Global AI Hub, and then you know um, Cognitive Finance Group, SAP, and a lot of other startups, scale-ups, and investors. Everywhere you see nowadays AI and machine learning in fintech is, is something to explore. How to advance your fintech skills? Uh, coming up to the end of this uh, presentation, I would recommend a few books. I think the first one would be Lean Startup, and then Hard Thing About Hard Things, then Venture Deals, Innovator's Dilemma, Entrepreneurial Finance, and also you can start your business without. Uh, actually VC and uh, you can fund it with your customers cash so check out that as well if you google those names uh, the easily the names will pop up now blogs and social media I like Henry Arslanian's crypto capsule he produces unbelievably funny and innovative and insightful 60 uh, second videos every week Henry Arslanian is a PwC crypto expert based in Hong Kong with 1 million followers on LinkedIn and uh, I talked to him for our 100th episode so it was very exciting to talk to him and then of course the latest greatest news you will find at conferences and these days you can um, even when you cannot travel um, for all kinds of reasons you can always see a hybrid version of it like Lendit or Finnovate or FinTech Talents otherwise if you can if you're in those locations where they held you can do it in, per in, uh, in person and there are many, many uh, fintech courses, which Marie will talk about as well, hosted by Emeritus like Wharton or Imperial Fintech course. And uh, 
one other thing is maybe you can also check out the episode uh, on the podcast from uh, with teammate where I talked to um, teammate um, partner uh, Yuval Tal from Israel who talked about how you should go about potentially uh, joining a fintech if you have an opportunity to talk to them basically the point is do your diligence on the founders and the company because well first of all they'll do the diligence on you so you should also do that now because it's early stage this is not going to be something that you can just read upon the annual report and you will be done but you should talk to as many employees and clients or investors or anybody who knows what it's like to work in that company before you make a decision other than that you know look at the transferable skills that you can have even if you go to that startup. And of course, before you get into the discussion, I think taking a FinTech course, um, you know, any of the courses that Emeritus offers would be great. Now, so I just want to wrap up here to say that, look, FinTech's funding is at all time high. Hopefully the 2022 will not change that. Uh, whether you talk about B2C or B2B FinTechs, but, um, you know, it's all time, uh, all time, all great to be a fintech founder, um, especially maybe finally after many years of lack of focus, B2B founder. Fund, founder. Uh, a lot of those uh, companies are now also reaching scale where they turn profit and they're very famous. They've been loss making for a long time, but now they're changing to be sustainable. So that's a good sign as well. Um, as I said, B2B in terms of funding is uh, is booming. Uh, look at that as a outsourcing solution of innovation for banks who still suffer from technological, you know, technological debt, where a lot of their IT budgets are not necessarily discretionary. They're still playing a catch-up when it comes to regulation, even today. And then definitely spend time on thinking about DeFi or decentralized finance that will disrupt for sure many industries in um, unpredictable ways maybe uh, they can be um, you know changing industries which are based on the uh, regulation or the role of the central counterparty and we maybe figure out it's not necessarily needed so thank you so much if you have any questions or comments you can email me at info at voiceofintech.com or check out the website thanks so much uh, thank you, uh, Rudy, so much for being here with us today and taking us through uh, this content, uh, demystifying fintech. And certainly as we talk about um, additional learning opportunities, uh, you've seen a few uh, pop-up messages, some prompts there in the chat. Um, we want to make sure that you have a place to go uh, with your questions and an academic advisor to work with as you think about uh, what some next steps might be. So uh, we invite you to stay on the line for about five more minutes. We're going to take you through um, some additional learning opportunities. But firstly, thank you uh, to you, Rudy, for being here with us today, uh, for taking us through this content. Um, it's been an absolute honor uh, learning uh, from you here today in this context. So thank you again for joining. And we certainly invite um, all of you to stay on with us here. Uh, please put your questions in the question box, any comments uh, there that you have for us. Uh, let us know what's on your mind. But let's go ahead and dive into some of the upcoming programs and educational opportunities um, here at Emeritus uh, specifically. So um, and the next couple of slides, and we're just going to jump through these really quickly here. Uh, we're going to showcase for you our entire portfolio um, of upcoming programs. You'll see on your screen there, there's a link as well as a QR code uh, that will allow you to uh, 
go over to our portfolio of all of our courses. So um, if you haven't done so already, take that QR code there, that link um, that's on your screen and go check out the portfolio of upcoming finance and FinTech courses. Um, if I can ask us to uh, advance forward to the next slide here, um, we wanna talk about making the best professional education accessible and affordable globally. We, we mentioned that before at the beginning of the session, what do we mean by that? Uh, so let's move on. Um, as we talk about uh, joining this learning community, we wanted to give you some information about what you can expect from your learning experience here. Um, and so what you see here on your screen is an example of the actual platform that we use for all of our programs. Uh, what we're showcasing here is a Northwestern Kellogg program in mastering sales, um, but certainly all of our programs um, have these six features uh, that are called out here. It's a cohort-based program, so all of our programs will take you through the content uh, together with your peers, allowing you the opportunity uh, to not only see how the concepts you're learning about apply to your work, your professional goals, uh, your career advancement, um, but as you learn shoulder to shoulder with your peers throughout our programs, uh, you're getting that broadened scope of understa um, understanding, sort of that broadened perspective um, as you see the same concepts coming to life for your peers and their geographies and in their industries and in their professional roles. So you get that deep dive into the knowledge, you get that expanded viewpoint and learning from a truly diverse group of peers. Um, our cohorts attract um, uh, colleagues from all across the globe, um, from all different industry areas, from all different professional backgrounds. So a lot of rich learning opportunity for you as you think about building those relationships, uh, not only with your peers, but also with your teaching team. Um, each of our courses has a, a vibrant and robust teaching team, program faculty from one of the world's leading, um, leading universities, uh, together with learning facilitators um, who are industry experts uh, serving as your day-to-day -day, uh, sort of teaching fellows, uh, guiding your experience every step of the way. So we uh, follow a pedagogical approach called bite-sized learning, all of this culminating into a chance to earn a credential here uh, from, uh, from the school. Uh, uh, that's producing the program here. So you can see where the credential we're showcasing here is from MIT. Uh, that's another one of our partner universities. And this program is in machine learning. Um, but each of our programs culminate in a chance to earn a credential um, and formalize your training. Um, but doing this using a bite-sized learning approach, they're really taking you through um, the content in a way that allows you to fully immerse yourself in the learning in real time and at your own pace. So our videos are on-demand videos, meaning you can watch them as many times as you need to around a schedule that works for you. And then all of the other activities you see here, simulation, games, role play, real world application, um, that peer-to-peer -peer discussion, learning feedback, uh, you're stepping away from your on-demand videos and you're taking part in these immersive activities uh, designed to really help you bring to life your learning in real time. Um, so there's a nice blend of synchronous and asynchronous learning, um, allowing you a, both a high level of engagement in the program and a high level of convenience. And certainly as you take a look at some of the participant profiles here, uh, we've um, we've carved out for you some testimonials from participants who've come through our programs before. And these are two key areas that we see come up again and again at participants report back um, the high level of peer engagement, um, interaction, activity, relationship building uh, together with a high level of convenience and being able to access all of our programs on the go um, using our mobile app or tablet. Um, so certainly a lot of opportunity for you to advance your education, uh, step into one of our programs here and do 
do so in a way that also broadens your professional network and earns a certificate or credential from a leading university. So a lot of opportunity here specific to fintech, though. Um, let's talk about some of our upcoming uh, finance courses and fintech courses. We're going to showcase those for you quickly here. Um, so let's go to the next slide. And if I can ask, we just kind of jump through these uh, rather quickly. I think there's going to be four slides here, but as you can see, an expansive portfolio from schools such as Wharton, uh, Berkeley Executive Education, Columbia, uh, courses on finance, fintech, blockchain. Uh, here we're showcasing courses as well from uh, Imperial University, um, another one here from Wharton in financial analytics. Um, the next slide is going to showcase a few more university, a few more courses here. Um, and we invite you to come back and take a more detailed look at some of these courses. And certainly that QR code there on your screen, if you want to take a jump through these courses on your own and really click through them and get a better understanding of what their offerings are, uh, use that QR code there or use the link that's just come up into your chat. Um, it'll take you right on over to our course uh, page that uh, showcases for you all of the upcoming programs in finance and fintech. Um, so as you're teasing out, you know, which one of these programs is best for me? Uh, you know, where should I focus uh, the next steps in my learning journey? Um, these are some of the questions you might be thinking about. Which of these programs require prerequisite knowledge? Um, how technical are we getting? Perhaps you want to learn a, a very detailed um, analytic tools, or perhaps you're here for more of those soft skills, like how to translate data into business decisions. Uh, so depending on that level of technicality, you might be examining the program uh, from that lens. Uh, what are some of the financing options? What are those logistical pieces? How long are the program? What is the time commitment from week to week? Uh, this is a lot to sort through on your own. Uh, so we want wanted to provide you with an opportunity to get connected with an academic advisor. Um, and again, the way that you do that, the QR code, the link there, if you go over to our program page here, you'll see all of our upcoming programs. And if you find one that interests you, you can click right in and schedule an appointment with an academic advisor. Our advisors will help walk you through some of these questions here that you have about the logistics for the program, policy, duration, uh, how to earn that certificate of completion, and, and what program is really the best fit for you. And so we invite you, if you haven't done so already, go on over to our course page, uh, take a look at our portfolio of upcoming courses and get connected with an academic advisor. Uh, so with that, we're going to round out our session here today. Um, thank you all for joining. Uh, it's been an absolute honor and pleasure learning shoulder to shoulder with each and every one of you. And we hope to see you back in one of our live events here, in one of our on-demand events, or in one of our upcoming programs. Uh, please don't be a stranger. And thank you again uh, to you, Rudy, uh, for being here and for staying all the way through the end of our time together. Thank you, Marie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much. And with that, we close out the session with a heartfelt good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good day to all of you from around the globe. Thank you again for joining, and we hope to see you back soon in one of our programs. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.